You're listening to What the Dev. I'm Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of SD Times. And joining me today is Jeff Williams, the co-founder and CTO of Contrast Security. And we're going to be talking today about updated cybersecurity framework from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Uh, Jeff also was the co-founder of uh, OWASP, which, of course, many folks know as the uh, the uh, listing of uh, security vulnerabilities, and they rank them and tell us uh, what we should be looking to fight. So how are you doing, Jeff? Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for joining us. So I know we were talking before the recording started, and you're telling me now these NIST standards are about uh, 20 years old. Um, so talk to me a little bit about uh, how they how they began and, and what the goal is. Yeah, so NIST has an extensive set of standards. Uh, they cover all aspects of cybersecurity work, and you know they're they're pretty good. I mean, they're kind of dry uh, government kind of approach to uh, security. It's not uh, the most interesting reading in the world, but they set out all kinds of frameworks and and standards and guidelines around understanding what your your company is potentially at risk for, and then. How do you deal about it? How do you deal with it? So, uh, you know, it's really quite a broad set of standards. Right. So, uh, and I know that they released their uh, security, cybersecurity framework, uh, and there's some news around that. So uh, maybe you can get into that a little bit, What uh, what's happening. Yeah, sure. So there's two things there. There's the NIST cybersecurity framework, which is like the highest level description of a cybersecurity program. Um, and then there's all these different standards that come underneath that. So that, that, you know, a lot of companies use the NIST cybersecurity framework just to get organized. Like if you're a CISO, you have to have a framework to organize all the, you know, the 50 moving parts that you have to manage uh, to make sure your enterprise is secure. And one of those standards is called uh, NIST 853. And basically it's a huge catalog of security requirements and defenses that you might implement in your organization. And uh, it's important because it lists, you know, kind of all the stuff that you ought to do in your cybersecurity program. And so they, they update this thing periodically. I think the last update was uh, three or four years ago. And uh, this new update, and you know, it's uh, been in the works for quite a while and it's finally coming out. So uh, it's, uh, I guess, it's exciting to those of us who care about that sort of thing. <laughs> so tell me about um, some of the new, um, I, I don't know if you would call them features or requirements or standards or. Yeah, well, I'm particularly focused on the application security aspects of this update. And so there's a couple of really big changes that I, that I care about. The first one is that they've added new techniques for testing uh, applications to make sure that they're secure enough. And that's actually really important because it's, you know, it's been 20 years basically, and AppSec hasn't changed very much in that time. Everybody does the same stuff. They do, you know, code review and pen testing and static analysis and dynamic analysis. And they use WAFs and none of that stuff really works very well. And so it's exciting to see that NIST is now acknowledging that there are new techniques for doing those things. So the first requirement they added was uh, is, is called uh, Interactive Application Security Testing, or IAST. And basically, it's, uh, it's something that I have a lot of experience with. That's one thing that my company does. And essentially, it, it 
test applications from the inside out as opposed to just kind of banging on them from the outside in. And because it's it works from the inside, it has a lot more information about what's going on inside the applications. And so it can do a much better job of uh, finding vulnerabilities and reporting them without tons of false positives and uh, without disrupting your process. Interesting. So here's a question that just dawned on me. You're talking about the fact that they have all these standards and things. And and I know you were saying before how these uh, standards and this framework are uh, picked up by many federal agencies. So, uh, and on top of that, to go, to uh, mention the fact that you were the co-founder of OWASP, which was always listing the, um, the vulnerabilities. And one of the last times we spoke, uh, I, I remember saying, why are these same vulnerabilities on this list 15 years after they showed up the first time? So to tie kind of all that in, and, and you mentioning that the techniques that we now have are particularly effective, my question is why, if we put so much time and effort into this and, and so much thinking about security, why aren't things just more secure? Are people not following the standards? Are they not doing the work? I, I, I don't understand. Yeah, no, that's a totally fair question. It's something I ask myself quite a bit. I mean, I really think that uh, the industry has to change for us to do better at, at AppSec. Because you're right, it's the, the number of vulnerabilities per app hasn't really changed in the last 20 years. Uh, it's basically the same vulnerabilities. Uh, so, you know, we're really not making a lot of progress. And, you know, you can put out standards that say you got to do this stuff, but frankly, that doesn't really change very much. I think about, like a good analogy might be the automobile industry in like the, the 50s and 60s, uh, had tons of safety problems. If you remember, that's when Ralph Nader wrote Unsafe at Any Speed. Right, right. And he was talking about, you know, sort of the pervasive safety problems in the automobile industry. And it didn't change overnight. You know, it took decades of uh, some, some high profile accidents. It took government regulation. It took uh, competition from Japan and a whole bunch of other factors to change the market. Even some car companies that were like solely focused on safety, like Volvo. Yeah. And uh, slowly that market changed to now, safety is a critical competitive feature in the automobile market. And I believe that will happen in the software market as well, right. but it will take time. Right. Well, I don't know, it, it, it seems like it's already taken a lot of time and, uh... But I'm I'm sure progress is being made that uh, we don't see in a lot of uh, a lot of cases. It's only you only hear about the high profile stuff that happens, but you don't hear about all the things that were detected, denied, turned back. Uh, you know, so I'm sure security is working on some level. Uh, you know, it's just yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's look, there's a lot of really smart people putting in a lot of really uh, you know right. uh, important work in this this area. But you remember, software is moving really fast, so we keep introducing new risks. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I think companies uh, struggle with how much to spend on security. You know, should the security cost more than the software that, <laughs> you, you know, you paid to build it? Right. Uh, it might be harder to secure it than it is to build it. So, you know, there's there's all these kind of questions that cause companies, I think, to underspend a lot on, on software security and not achieve the levels of assurance that, that standards like NIST have in mind. I mean, I think 
you know, I, I know Ron Ross pretty well. He's the guy that runs the, the FISMA program over at NIST. And, uh, you know, his vision is of, uh, for a different kind of, of engineering where security is taken, you know, taken into account from the very beginning of the process. It's an important feature of, uh, of what we're building. And I don't, I don't think that's really where industry is, or and I know it's not where the federal government is. So, right, yeah, but I know uh, you know with, with the uh, advent of DevOps and and talking about shifting security left with uh, you know DevSecOps uh, that I know that a lot of organizations are trying to address it earlier on, as opposed to just okay, we've written this software now, like you said, put it behind a firewall or somehow try to uh, uh, protect it after the fact. Um, so, uh, is, is this, uh, part of, uh, what I, uh, I asked is, um, addressing to try to get into that code level kind of security? Yeah. I mean, one of the, I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, I asked is an accurate way of detecting vulnerabilities. And the one thing that you got to make sure you don't do is give developers a bunch of false positives because they, then they're going to feel like they're wasting their time, which they are. and uh, they're they're going to try to avoid those those issues. So it's really important that we get accurate feedback to developers. If you're just taking sort of traditional security tools like SAS and DAS that generate tons of false positives right. and push those left onto developers who don't really have the security expertise to tell whether things are false positives or not, uh, you're going to irritate them a lot. Actually, I, instead of shifting left, I call that shitting left. Right. And I remember. it's not fair to development teams to, to do that. So, you know, getting developers really accurate tools that they can use without adding a lot of process steps is, is important. And that's what IaaS provides. So I'm, I'm thrilled that it's now part of the NIST standard and people can adopt IaaS and make it part of their security programs. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, shifting left is only kind of half the problem, right? It should actually be extending left, but whatever. Uh, we also need to extend right into ops, right? We're, we're doing DevSecOps and there needs to be an operational component of what we're doing for security. Traditionally, people have used web application firewalls for that. But again, uh, you know, fire, web app firewalls sit at the perimeter. They don't really understand what they're protecting. And so they end up making a lot of mistakes, both false positives and you know, maybe more importantly, false negatives. Uh, or real vulner- real attacks that they're they're uh, blocking. False positives would be when the web app firewall inappropriately blocks uh, user data, breaking your application. And false negatives would be when they allow real attacks through into the application. And uh, would there even be an alert on that? I mean, would would because no, the the yeah, they never even it. know. So it, they could successfully exploit your application without anybody knowing it. Right. So the, the second part here is another requirement that they added to NIST 853 uh, for runtime application self-protection. And uh, it's a powerful technique for adding security directly into applications as opposed to trying to enforce a perimeter around them. With RASP, the protection is and it's, you know, teams don't have to change their code or redeploy or anything, but uh, RASP instruments the application with uh, defenses that can identify these attacks, 
and prevent them from exploiting vulnerabilities in the application. Ooh. So it's uh, you know it's a lot different than the traditional WAF in terms of ease of deployment and scalability and accuracy. Right. So it seems like you just need security guys all throughout the team because I know some people are talking about well you need to create these development squads almost that have a tester and a developer and a security person and a, and a business guy, uh, you know, all working to create the software. But then I think you also need somebody who has kind of the end-to-end view of security, you know, watching what's happening as the code is being written all the way through deployment and how it's being secured once it's uh, out in production. Yeah, and that would be great if we had enough security people. Right. <laughs> the problem is there's, you know, epidemic shortages in uh, security expertise. So what we really need is tools that can act like a force multiplier, right? We can't assign one security person to one app because we, you know, I know lots of organizations that have thousands or tens of thousands of applications. Right. And there's just no way you're going to get uh, that many security folks. So we've got to figure out a way to have, uh, you know, one security person do the security for 10 apps or a hundred apps. Um, that's the kind of scale that we need. So we need these powerful tools that allow this to be largely automated. Right. So let me ask you this. In this uh, you know, no, novel uh, coronavirus world that we're in right now and people working more remotely than ever, is this creating more opportunities for uh, malicious behavior because now there's no central uh, office and a lot of people are using uh, cloud tools and and other kinds of things. Does that make us more vulnerable now, do you think? Or is the level about the same? Well, I think, you know, in principle, there's nothing wrong with working from home and having your data in the cloud. Uh, I think, in fact, in a lot of ways, that can be much more secure because, you know, most organizations aren't great at running data centers. And, the, you know, the big cloud providers are great at running data centers. In fact, I heard somebody say nobody should ever run their own exchange server it's way too complicated oh. these days. But that said, uh, this is brand new for a lot of companies. A lot of companies are standing stuff up quickly in you know, this uh, emergency time. And that's when people make security mistakes is when we're rushing around changing things fast without thinking them through. And so, yeah, there's going to be p- companies that uh, get exposed because of this change. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but uh, that's what happens when we rush around and and do things without really planning out security. Right. Well, I mean, this is something, obviously, that people couldn't have planned for, or maybe they could have, but didn't. Oh, you definitely could. I mean, uh, you know, we have a, a, you know, at Contrast, we do support working from home. So we had most of this infrastructure in place. But, uh, you know, I think as part of everyone's uh, emergency response plan, they should have... Uh, a, a scenario where the offices get closed. I mean, that can, that's just good planning. Right. Do you normally work from home? I do a lot. I mean, I'm on the road a lot, but uh, with this coronavirus, all my travel has been canceled. So, uh, right. Yeah, this, is, this is my home office. There you go. Uh, yeah, this is uh, brand new for me. I'm not used to working uh, from home at all. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. And I'm in a, my, my uh, office in my house is in the basement next to the boiler room. So <laughs> I'm sure at some point during this conversation, we're going to hear that thing kick in and uh, we'll have to pause and, until it stops, I guess. I don't know. Or sure, maybe, whatever. I mean, maybe uh, my sound engineer can edit that out. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny because I hear this a lot 
and and then you talk to people who are actually working and they'll tell you yeah we we kind of have an emergency plan but it you know hopefully we'll never have to use it or yeah we take security seriously <laughs> but as you said it either costs too much or it's too hard or it takes too much time uh so you know, it's like the same thing. You know, people tell us and a lot of organizations will say this, well, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. Like my mom saying, you need to brush your teeth. You need to eat your vegetables. Like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, uh, yeah. Well, you just answered your own question from the beginning of the podcast, right? Like, why is it not changing? It's exactly because of that kind of attitude. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that that's true. Anyway. All right. We're right up against time, Jeff. Listen, I appreciate uh, you joining us for the podcast today. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Be well in this uh, crazy time. And uh, hopefully we'll get to chat again soon. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for talking with me this morning. Okay. Thank you. This has been Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of SD Times, and this is What the Dev. So long.